Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Integrated Health Podcast. I'm joined in the studio here by some very special people, but as always, I have my co-host with me, Mr. Angelo Keeley. So happy to be here with you, Danny. And once again, we are very lucky to have Dr. Sona Demigian back in the studio with us today. It is wonderful to be here. And I'm very, very excited about this show. We actually have a visitor with us from British Columbia. I think it's the first time we've had a Canadian on the show. Uh, and we're excited about <laughs> hey? that. Hey? And we <laughs> no, we really, truly are excited about that. And we really, really appreciate um, Dr. Kimberly Schonert-Reichel, and I'm saying your name correctly. Yes. Dr. Kim, we're going to call her from here on out, though. Um, Dr. Kim is an applied developmental psychologist and a professor in human development, learning, and culture area in the Department of Educational and Counseling Psychology and special education at the University of British Columbia. She is also the director of Human Early Learning Partnership in the School of Population and Public Health and the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. And she's also done tons of other things, but because we want to talk with you, we're going to leave it at that. Dr. Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you. We are it's thrilled a pleasure to, have to you. be here, really. Thank you so much. So your main interest has been in social emotional learning. And of course, SEL is a popular term um, for people who know what that is. But I would imagine some of our listeners today don't know what SEL or social emotional learning is. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that for starters. So social and emotional learning really refers to those skills or competencies you have that include things like being able to be self-aware, to be able to be aware of your emotions, to think about how you manage your emotions and self-management, to how you get along with others, things like empathy, being able to resolve conflicts peacefully, being able to make responsible decisions, um, and things like that that we now know are actually more important in predicting life success than academic achievement. And in fact, over the past uh, couple of decades, research is really showing that these social and emotional skills, or sometimes people call them non-cognitive skills or soft skills, that they're actually so important for success in school and in life. How did you get into this? I'm sure it's a, it's a long story, but how did you get interested in this particular field? Well, you know, um, yeah, I was thinking, reflecting on that question of how, how I became interested. And it really started um, back when I was in teacher education, get, doing my degree in teacher education, because I have a background, uh, a degree, a bachelor's degree in elementary education planned. You know, when I graduated high school, I was going to become an elementary school teacher. I was really dedicated to that. And um, it was really during about my junior year of college that I started really realizing how much I liked learning uh, when I learned about development, learning about things like self-esteem and how you boost students' self-esteem and how you help them. But then um, one day I was in a child development class and I was reading my textbook and I came across this um, this page. It was one of those pages you don't really have to read. It's kind of a little story. And I read about this school for children who were considered hopeless cases. It was a school for children with severe emotional and behavioral disorders, um, but it was run on this idea that the children should be empowered and should look for strengths. And it was started by a very famous psychologist or, um, named Bruno Bettelheim. And Bruno Bettelheim had been uh, basically during uh, World War II had been in two concentration camps, Dachau and Buchenwald, mm. was released in, 19, in 1941 
to come to the University of Chicago, and he helped create this school called the Orthogenic School, which was really a child-centered approach where children um, got to choose, like, uh, they didn't have locks on the door, so children could leave if they wanted to. They, didn't, they took away the bars from the windows. Um, they got to choose the um, meals that they ate and got to eat off of China. It was kind of an anti-mental institution. So when I read about that school, I realized how much I was interested in the social and emotional lives of children. And um, it then led me on a path to graduating teaching, first teaching 7th and 8th grade French in a middle school outside of Chicago, Oak Park, Illinois, and then going and uh, teaching for two, uh, more than two years in an alternative high school, because I thought if I want to go work at this orthogenic school with these kids considered hopeless cases, I first have to see if I really like being around kids with a lot of problems. Sure. I mean, that's, you know? yeah, And yeah. so those kids, uh, yeah, so there's lots of background, but it really was that uh, sort of that moment, that turning point where I, I realized that I really wanted to focus on helping kids um, develop social and emotional skills and um, work with those kids who were characterized by things that they didn't have. Hmm. More of them from their deficits. It was. That's how I initially started with that deficit approach. But I soon learned from the kids that um, how much the strengths they brought in, um, how much um, they brought. And in fact, I'll tell, can I just tell you a story? Of that course, was a course. Again, a really, so I was teaching at this alternative high school and um, it was really difficult at first because I was, you know, all of 23 years old. It was one of my first teaching jobs. I taught seventh and eighth grade French and I came into a school and it was in an office complex. It was very interesting. It was kind of just bare walls and, and, uh, the kids at first, they ranged in age from about 13 to 19. Some were doing their GED. Um, they were really mean to me, like really awful. They called me names that weren't Kim. Um, <laughs> they um, told me how much their other teacher was so much better than I was. They, I was the reading teacher, so I actually think for a lot of them who had maybe reading problems, I was like the devil. You know, I was the one who always confronted them about their deficits. And uh, at first, my feelings were really hurt. Like, I felt, you know, I felt so incompetent. I felt hurt. And then I realized that this was their resiliency. If you'd been in a school system that you'd been told by people who were teachers that you don't matter, that you're a loser, either real or imagined, their strength is that they put up a barrier. Why would you put make yourself vulnerable right, for a person like right. that? So um, I soon sort of, when, once I got over that and sort of realized that this was really uh, functional for them, that it was up to me to show them that they could trust me. And I started listening in on conversations. I became very sleuth-like. I'd listen on conversations mm. and find out that they really liked cars. And the next day I would show up with a magazine, car and driver, and go, oh, wait, I heard you might like cars. Maybe this is what we can use for your reading assignment. And you know, really tried to listen. And then um, one thing that was really important is I, the, there were bare walls and I said to them, you know, you guys, do you like the walls in here? We don't have anything up. Can, don't you think I need some help decorating? And I started bringing magazines and getting ideas. And soon enough, they decorated the whole, we, they actually How took, cool. they took, and they, what I loved was they created, because so many of them were so creative. They wrote poetry, they wrote songs. We had a whole a section that was just of their poetry and their songs and their art yeah. that we put up is, is just to illustrate that. But then I have to say there was one student. So I kind of made these inroads with all the students, but there was one student, Bill. And Bill was my nightmare. He was <laughs> the kid who, um, I'm just telling you, he, when he 
he was so annoying. Um, you know, I remember. Scary. Was he scary or annoying? He wasn't about? scary. He was yeah. just a pain in the neck. Yeah. He would come in and he basically disrupted everyone else who was working. He yeah. put down, pulled pencils and papers off of floors. He'd, and whenever I asked him to do something, he never would do it. He'd like, it would be on the floor. He'd look at me defiantly, like, I'm You're not, not going to do it. You're not going to get to me. So it really became so that for Bill, uh, when he wasn't there, it was a happier day for me. I really was happy when he wasn't there. Um, until one day, Bill came in, and I had some really, I have to say, really lame worksheet because we did worksheets, and it was really lame. And he did this, and I and we were reading a book, and I gave him this piece of paper and said, Bill, you need to fill this out. You have to do your assignment. And I'm sure I rolled my eyes because I don't think he ever did anything <laughs> I had asked. Um, but a half an hour later, Bill comes up to me, and has this complete paper filled out hmm. with all the sentences. But next to each sentence is a tiny drawing that is somehow in a pencil that was so was small, but it was so detailed and precise and unbelievably talented. So then I look at this piece of paper of all that Bill had done, and it, in that a, a switch flipped in my head. Was Bill was no longer this loser kid who just got under my skin. He was this talented artist who had been misunderstood by the school system and who I now had such tremendous awe. And I really, I just have such appreciation of art. So I looked at Bill and I said, Bill, I didn't know that you had this talent. You are amazing. This is the most incredible work I've ever seen. And before my eyes, I looked at him, and you could see he was standing taller with this proud look on his face, looking at me. And and I just said, I, I just am so amazed at this. I need to learn more. I want to see how you do this. I want to. And that moment changed our entire relationship. I now saw Bill as this capable, talented individual who I had to then find a way for him to learn mm -hmm. and what I could do to, for his assignments. But I think for me, I also really learned in that moment that how much my reaction to students could change how they reacted to me. And that I had this power of even seeing them as a deficit and or if I could find their 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 talent. And, and then it also became clear to me that every child comes onto this planet with a talent, a strength, and our role of adults is to find what that is. And it was through the relationship and the focus on social and emotional learning um, that I was able to do that. So, so two observations. One, it seems like when you saw Bill and Bill knew that you saw him, Bill was able to see you for something more than a teacher and that a connection is, is being made there. The other thing that it really made me think about is somebody told me once that the root word educate really has more to do with to draw out from within, to draw out rather than what people think of, I'm going to put something to you and you're going to, could you speak about that a little bit? Is that, is that your experience of teaching that you're actually drawing out from people as well as teaching them something? Well, you know, it raises a really important question well, or an issue around social and emotional learning. A lot of people, I believe, um, misperceive social and emotional learning as a focus on just helping teach kids certain skills. So you're going to go teach them to be empathic. And so let's have them do these em empathy lessons and they're going to do it. And that's, an ins that's insufficient because what's really critical is that we um, learn in relationships. And, uh, and it's a it's got to be so. I, so I do believe like kids have the capacity for empathy, and so it's for us to 
create the conditions where that empathy can can come out and to, to celebrate that. So I, so I agree with you, this idea of how do we set those conditions, that context, it happens within a safe, caring, participatory context that is relationship-oriented, that is about those relationships. I can tell you the thing, you know, what I learned really, really um, at the Alternative High School and then when I went to work at this orthogenic school was the relationships were central. It, it was the relationship I had with a child or a student where they would learn um, what they would do if they trusted me. Uh, it's interesting, so I, I want to say, so to follow up with Bill, so what happened after that, I, I then, he walked on water for me. I mean, he was just, I felt he was just this amazing kid. He totally changed. He came to school every day. He would do his work, and then, and I could give him really, stupid things to do this is what's that was kind of interesting if there's things that I would say well you really have to do this because you know you have to do this he would do it even because he trusted me so mm. much of I only would ask him to do things that that were in his best interest because I mean I will say I loved those students they were I they they meant so much to me one other thing I just is a side note I, I want to say because this is another piece that we don't bring into social emotional learning is teachers own social emotional competence and well-being. We often think that teachers come in and they're all fully you know well and have all those competencies and um, for me when I worked at this alternative high school I had students um, again I was very young I had students who had been in jail on the weekend who had uh, come in, came in after the police apprehended their stepfather for sexually abusing their younger sister who had attempted suicide and were in a psychiatric hospital who had so many problems and I cared for them so deeply I took everything in with me and and those couple of years I was there I actually had a lot of like somatic issues in terms of my health like I had I got random hives I had stomach aches I had all sorts of things because I had no way of dealing with um their I, I had so much empathy for them that you know I was worried of getting empathy fatigue we it's actually a thing but then when I went and worked at the other school that was based on this therapeutic milieu there was a real focus on taking care of the adults so I had my own therapist I saw every week to talk about the issues there was a real focus on you know, making sure the adults and I had none of the same you know so I think that that's the other thing when we talk about social emotional learning we really can't talk about it just about we're just teaching, and I loved your way of saying to educate um, the children, but how much the teacher um, and whoever is that is important in their own well-being. They feel it. Students feel it, right? Like they know, they, they intuit what's going on a lot of times with their teachers and what the classroom feels like as a result. I've seen that with my own children. Other questions you guys want to ask? Because I'm so excited I could just keep going. <laughs> so on. Kim and I discovered today that we both actually worked at the same orthogenic school in Chicago. No at way. Di- wow. in what is the likelihood of that? That's crazy. Um, and one of the things, and you mentioned it, it was based really this notion of a milieu was such an important component. And I'm wondering what – can you speak a little bit about the role – I'm going to broaden that – the role of community – in schools and how we can cultivate a greater sense of community um, in schools broadly? 
Well, you know, I think that, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. I have to say that sense of connectedness, of being sort of part of that. And I think that when we talk about schools, we always have to talk about uh, parents are such a critical component of that. And and um, with a social and emotional learning approach, parents should be front and center. We should be spending as much time bringing in the information, the latest science to parents about what they can do to promote the social and emotional learning. So that's one aspect. So community is the is the teachers, but it's also the staff and the bus drivers and the lunch people and the janitorial staff and everyone has to be involved to think about um, social and emotional learning and how do you deal with discipline. So this is a very interesting one. So for example, social emotional learning, which is talking about how to solve problems peacefully and how you get along and negotiate conflicts. And all of a sudden you go and have a very punitive approach to discipline where a principal automatically suspends you instead of you know, so one approach for the the discipline would be a principal. Um, actually, I love this story. It came from Walla Walla, Washington. It was a high school that decided to put a, a resiliency approach to it. And um, what was so critical about it was that it uh, the principal had this kid come into his classroom, I mean, into his office, and the kid had, like, dropped the F-bomb in his class. He was a high school student, and the teacher sent him right to the principal's office and the principal had had this sort of shift paradigm shift or shift in terms of his thinking and said you know I have to take this approach to resiliency and relationship focus so here comes this kid you know swore and he's like kind of angry he comes and sits in the office and the principal goes you know and he was all ready for the principal to say, you know, you're suspended and I'm calling your, your parents consequences. Uh, all yeah. that yeah. and so what happened is the principal said say his name's Jack. Jack, what's going on? You're a really nice kid, I know. And for that to happen to you, for you to do that, there must be some, you must be really angry about something. He said, can you tell me on a scale of one to 10, what's your anger level right now? And the kid said something to eight. He said, wow, you must have something going on in your life to, to have that happen. And so the principal responded empathically and then the student, he broke down and was upset about family situation that was coming out. So, you know, so that would be an SEL approach versus an approach that you have SEL in the classroom and then you go home. So, um, so the other the other thing um, that I think is important to say is also this sense of community and how do you create community? And um, what we I found in my research, and um, I'll talk a bit about uh, one of these uh, projects, but when you engage individuals collectively in activities that benefit other human beings or other people, mm. that creates a sense of connection, a sense of shared uh, collective efficacy um, in doing things and, and that empathy. And so, and purpose, of, right? Like oh, genuine purpose. Totally. Yeah. And I think, um, I think you have, but you have to do it intentionally mm. and yeah, explicitly. So mm. um, I think that there is a tendency that people just go off and, when you're stressed and you kind of focus on yourself, but when you uh, when you focus on others, suddenly you have to lift your head up and mm -hmm. look at how others are feeling. Whereas when you're stressed, you kind of hunker down. So that's amazing. As a parent of young children, the thought that just keeps coming up for me is, what specifically can I do? So what specifically? What are the you know the priorities, the steps that I can do? Um, with my children in terms of both at home, but really in terms of identifying the right school or, or teacher. As you speak about that, it's really more about 
it's less about a specific curriculum. It's about the way that the environment is and the way that the adults interact with them and treat them. How can I identify the right school or help support that community at school? Um, and what can I do at home? Right. So uh, that's, I mean, I love that you have little ones and it's just so important because, um, I mean, I, I'm just going to mention a bit about the science because uh-huh. just to know Great. there's been some really important um, innovative research that has come out in the past few years about the capacity and, and capability of really young children and their understanding of emotions and uh, morality. So there's been some work at the University of British Columbia in psychology by a colleague of mine named Kylie Hamlin, who has been doing some work on infant mor- mor- uh, morality. And she's been finding that as young as three months of age that children will prefer a, um, a puppet who has done good or helped someone versus a puppet who has hindered someone. So she does a series of tasks, and I could give you the web, the link to, to, um, to, to see some of the videos. It's quite amazing, but really showing that, that these young infants, she does through, through the three-month-old, she does like eye gaze, and then the older one, she looks at which puppet they go, um, grab, but consistently showing that children very young, um, Paul Bloom has also been doing some of this work, have a sense of morality about right and wrong and who they prefer. Um, she's also been doing some great work showing this um, of happiness, finding some of the recent innovative research uh, that has been coming out of the, sense, the science of uh, positive psychology is that one way we can be happy is to help others. And uh, our own yeah, kindness to others actually increases our own happiness. And so um, Kylie has been showing that even young children, um, when, they give, um, when they give to another, uh, this way it was monkey, um, don't give their own, their own Cheerios, not something that someone else has given, but when they give their own Cheerios to the monkey, that their happiness um, through looking at facial expressions actually increases. And, and what we're finding more and more is that that we are basically born. Well, there's it's it's uh, there's definitely research showing that we are born empathic. That we're mm. there's um, work by at Harvard by Felix Wernicke and Michael Tomasello, who's at the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, Germany, showing that um, toddlers, 18 months old, will um, help without any expectation of reward, and they have like a series born of videos. With altruism. Like, yes, know. they call it. Though they actually, they have a paper called "The Roots of Human Altruism" that they really make a case from evolution that we were born to be um, altruistic, and that's how we survived as a species. And that Darwin talked about this early on, but it never was really um, paid attention to. So that um, so Felix shows actually, I love this one study where he. So they've shown repeatedly these 18-month-olds will help someone with no expectation of reward and will do it spontaneously. And then they did another study where to say if you get the young child, 18, two-and-a-half-year-olds in this case, and one group of kids got a reward, like a little toy when they helped. One group of kids got the, thank you very much, that was so nice of you to help me. And the other group got nothing, that the children in the reward condition stopped helping for the next time that it actually undermined their altruistic tendencies so i guess so basically i should just like don't even touch them or talk to them just don't mess with them they're fine (laughs) they're fine well (laughs) what were the other two because you said the one that got the rewards didn't do it as often and one was just praised like that was kind of yeah yeah, they they continued to help and the ones that did nothing continued to help continued to help Hmm. to the same actually to the large a bit of a larger degree but not statistically significant so the reward be was something that was coming from within yes it was and so the thing is it's what i would argue is that we socialize kids out of that 
mm-hmm. that we create an env- environment that is a kind of dog-eat-dog world that, you know, don't be too nice because people will step all over you, don't help, be wary. I mean, you know, you could see, and then a school system that is very much about an individualistic approach and, you know, puts the grades up and ranks who's at the top and who's at the bottom and, you know, creating those hierarchies so that you're suddenly not as helpful. But I think we can take it back (laughs) through SEL uh, programs. And there are some social emotional learning programs which uh, I've been doing research on, one called the Roots of Empathy, another one called the Random Acts of Kindness, another one called Mind Up, um, in which you engage uh, the children explicitly in acts of kindness and practicing gratitude and practicing mindfulness where you see very marked increases in those altruistic tendencies. I think it's a a re-emerging of them um, that you can A restoration, perhaps. These are publicly available resources that I could could bring home, I could encourage to be developed in my school if if it's not currently there. For sure. Actually, there's many resources, and I can give you some of these. I think as a parent... um, the and other, I think in terms of all of our listeners, too, like things that they can be able to do, I think any it, interested parent that's trying to... I think it would be so important. There is, um, I, as I, I have worked with the Dalai Lama Center for Peace and Education for a number of years in Vancouver, and they've created an online resource for parents and teachers called HeartMind Online. And all of these, uh, just the studies I've just talked about, are all available there, along with activities to support those. So the Felix Wernicken, the Kylie Hamlin, that really gives you a lot of that. But I wanted to say the other thing that we really find from the research is that um, parents who, who, a couple of things. One, parents who use a lot of emotion words actually have children with higher social emotional competence mm. who talk about your feelings and the feelings, oh, well, that, you just helped me with that. That made me so happy or, you know, um, or, or, you know, and just use a, a wide vocabulary of emotion words um, to talk about our emotions. So it just becomes a way, or, you know, reading books. I mean, books are perfect, you know, to say, how is this person feeling or that per you know, and really getting them to, because sort of the roots of empathy, of empathy, not this program, the roots, but the sort of is this idea of um, having emotional understanding, being able to identify and label emotions and give the reason behind that, along with the ability to understand why people behave the way they do and being able to explain. And then the one other piece, I mean, I have so I have lots of things, but the other <laughs> one so is awesome. to... Um, so awesome. I know. Um, and we'll put other, all these links on the on Yeah, the, uh, I think that page. would be great. I yeah. think. But the other one is to really talk about the good feelings that come from helping others. Mm. Um, you know, so much of, you know, we talk about, oh, you know, we end up focusing so much on the negative, but the idea of like... Um, explicitly helping someone say, oh, that, you know, and to talk about that. And then the last piece, I think, is also to help them develop, instead of saying, um, helping them develop a, a, a uh, sort of um, identity of a caring person. So instead of saying, that was so nice that you did that, to say, that was nice, you're such a caring person. Mm-hmm. And helping them internalize that idea of that, you know, to have that identity. And then when you sort of go forward in the world, it's like, oh, I wouldn't do that. I'm a caring person. Mm. So. I was just reading something specifically on that, actually, that uh, helping young children identify with with values as like being caring was really important in terms of their core identity, mm. but not things like you're so smart 
that then they end up like not putting as much effort. But when it's like really emotional values, then it tends to be much more helpful. Yes. Is that true? Yes. Well, I've read some of that research as well. I mean, I do have to say the research has really exploded in the past decade, probably more the last five years. So that's the other thing is that many teachers and even parents won't be aware of any of this new research that is really so groundbreaking in, in our understanding of how children develop, of the neuroscience. I think that plays a huge role in neuroplasticity because that's actually one of the biggest myths of these social and emotional skills is that they're not malleable, that they're traits that are fixed. And, and what we know now from recent research that they are highly teachable and malleable um, across all of childhood. Oh my gosh, this is so awesome. And we got to you got to come back to Boulder so we can do this again. <laughs> but I'm feeling a little pressed for time because I know because we got to get you to dinner. But I want to say what I'm very curious about is it seems like when we talk with people and listening to you, certainly, and the research that's being done, I'm sitting here ecstatic, right? Because I'm a father of four and I'm thinking, first of all, it was really nice. Thanks for saying that. It's good to talk about emotions because I do that a lot. And I, you know, I've been getting in trouble with it with my kids for years, too. They're like, Dad, you're so feely. But, you know, <laughs> but. I'm really curious about social emotional learning. Where are we going with it as a field? What needs to be done? You know, what it, there's great research happening. It sounds like there's some amazing things happening in Vancouver. Um, and certainly Boulder here, there's some exciting new projects and things happening. But what, in general, is there a curriculum? I'm, I'm sounding overly simple. Is there a, is there a training? I mean, if you, if you had your druthers, if you won the lottery, you had $100 million to do something, what would you do? Wow. That's, that's a great question. And I, I go to a couple of different places. There's not one right way to start because you have to start with um, uh, where the entry points. There's different levers, I think. I think um, number one, I mean, when, not just my number one. I'm just the thing that t- comes to the top of my head is teacher preparation. We need to incorporate this within when the foundation when people are learning to be educators, that they learn about SEL. They go in, it becomes the way they are. Um, so I think that that's critical. I think we need to engage parents and community in a much more intensive, integrated way than typically happens because I think this will, it's everybody's children, you know. It's, um, I think that that, we really have to figure out ways to do that. I think we have to, um, I, actually, I actually feel the buy-in is still, it's not in the place yet where it's in public knowledge about the importance of this, the recent innovations, the neuroscience, the research that shows that um, actually this one study it just it's great that children in kindergarten who had higher pro-social skills who were able to more likely to help and cooperate to listen to others they followed them up 13 and 17 years later and found that those children with those skills in kindergarten remember those are teachable were more likely to graduate from high school earn a college degree obtain stable employment not be on public assistance not abuse drugs Wow! just from how nice you were in kindergarten. Um, so, And that obviously has to be modeled from the teacher and in the environment, right? Like the, it has to be set up that way, which is why you're saying it sounds like, you know, first thing is teacher preparation and people really embodying that themselves, having their education be that way. Yeah, and I think care for the adults. I, I, I keep on coming back to this idea that, and as I mentioned, you know, earlier on, this idea of how, 
uh, stressed I was working with these kids and and things. And I think that we need to prepare, do more explicit focus on adults' well-being and social-emotional competence. Because I think we assume that by adulthood, somehow you have it all. Um, and we have to just say, no, you don't. And there's um, there's lots of ways to help develop that. And, um, and I think that that focus would be a really critical way to go. But I think, I mean, going back to the lottery, I think... Um, it really has to be at a systemic level. It can't just be one program in one school. That um, It has to be um, top-down, meaning from the leaders, all the leaders buying in, and bottom-up from the teachers and the parents engaged. And, um, and, and, I, and sort of the l- last thing I would say about this is the students have to be engaged. I feel like anything, don't uh, do it to them. You have to, it has to be with them. Um, so I, I think any approach has to have the kids, even from the young. I've seen kids at kindergarten where you go in and say, how should we organize the class and which lesson? They have lots of ideas, and I think we have to have them engaged as well. It's such an absolute pleasure to have you in Boulder. Thank you oh, so thank much for you. making the trip. It's really, really exciting. And um, will you come back on when you come back here next yes, time? Yes, of okay, course. Great. And we'll really look forward to that. Anything that we've left out that you really want to talk about or mention and website. Do you have a, your own website or something? I have a website, but it's not really got anything useful. I think the heart, you know, if I have to think about my top websites, certainly the Heart Mind Online is one of them. The Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. Another one, the, um, the Great Teacher Center, actually the American Institute of Research is one. Uh, there's an SEL resource finder at UBC, one of my colleagues developed, mm-hmm. as well as at HeartMind Online. So there's lots of stuff available. Oh, actually, there's a great one for from NBC for parents on children's social-emotional development mm-hmm. with tons of resources. I don't know if you've Amazing. seen it. You know, can I ask one last question of you, Kim, before we wrap up here, which is, so you're originally from Chicago um, and have been in Canada for how long now? 25 years. 25 years. So... So my question is piggybacking on Danny's question. If you look at the U.S. right now and the educational systems in the U.S. in particular from that vantage point of growing up in American school systems, but yet and being a teacher and being a teacher in American school systems and yet having this different perspective from um, being in Canada for the last couple decades, what do you think? are the most, is the most, or are the most important um, levers to help uh, shift the school, the educational system in the U.S. um, to really more fully embrace social emotional learning for for kids and teachers. Wow. Okay. Not to uh, <laughs> just a little <laughs> question to end with. Well, yeah. you know, the thing that comes easy. to mind is <laughs> it's interesting. So British Columbia now has adopted social and emotional learning as part of a K twelve curriculum, and that took work and the science and and things. I think um, if I think about the different levers we had to do that, number one, we do not have a focus on um, standardized achievement test scores in. British Columbia. In Canada, I could speak mostly for BC, we have three times during the K-12 to that they have standardized tests, fourth grade, 7th grade, and 12th grade now. Um, They're very low stakes. They don't close a school. They don't get posted on any websites. Um, We certainly do very well and look at accountability very seriously, but it hasn't been 
you know, the, the stress that occurs around the standardized where they can't fit another minute in, they teach the test and things. And I think um, the other thing is, so we value teachers very highly. Our teachers get paid well, they're well educated, they're seen, um, I think they have higher status. And so I think that really has led to, um, it was really the interest in social emotional learning around social responsibility that started that was through the teachers. It wasn't through, it was not a top-down. And actually, social responsibility in 2001 became a performance standard in BC and included four things, um, solving problems in peaceful ways, practicing democratic rights and responsibilities, contributing to classroom and school community, and valuing diversity and defending human rights became a part of the performance standards, was not mandated specifically because they said people will react if it's mandated and it would and the it's it just grew rapidly but that value of those things and honoring them um you know and just go where you can you know low-hanging fruit basically once again thank you so much for being here and um we'll look forward to our next time part two. We have you. yeah part okay, two thank, thank you dr you. kim oh thank, thank you, you so much it's been a pleasure okay take care <laughs>